Section 12 of Ingersoll on the Great Infidels from the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 3, Lectures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Section 12. David Hume. The worst religion of the world was the Presbyterianism of Scotland as it existed in the beginning of the 18th century. The Kirk had all the faults of the Church of Rome without a redeeming feature. The Kirk hated music, painting, statuary, and architecture. Anything touched with humanity, with the devils of joy, was detested and accursed. God was to be feared, not loved. Life was a long battle with the devil. Every desire was of Satan. Happiness was a snare, and human love was wicked, weak, and vain. The Presbyterian priest of Scotland was as cruel, bigoted, and heartless as the familiar of the Inquisition. One case will tell it all. In the beginning of this, the 19th century, a boy, 17 years of age, Thomas Aikenhead was indicted and tried at Edinburgh for blasphemy. He had denied the inspiration of the Bible. He had, on several occasions, when cold, jocularly wished himself in hell that he might get warm. The poor, frightened boy recanted, begged for mercy, but he was found guilty, hanged, thrown in a hole at the foot of the scaffold, and his weeping mother vainly begged that his bruised and bleeding body might be given to her. This one case, multiplied again and again, gives you the conditions of Scotland when on the 26th of April, 1711, David Hume was born. David Hume was one of the few Scotchmen of his day who were not owned by the church. He had the manliness to examine historical and religious questions for himself, and the courage to give his conclusions to the world. He was singularly capable of governing himself. He was a philosopher, and lived a calm and cheerful life, unstained by an unjust act, free from all excess, and devoted, in a reasonable degree, to benefiting his fellow men. After examining the Bible, he became convinced that it was not true. For failing to suppress his real opinion, for failing to tell a deliberate falsehood, he brought upon himself the hatred of the church. Intellectual honesty is the sin against the Holy Ghost, and whether God will forgive the sin or not, his church has not, and never will. Hume took the ground that a miracle could not be used as evidence until the fact that it had happened was established. But how can a miracle be established? Take any miracle recorded in the Bible, and how could it be established now? Oh, you may say, upon the testimony of those who wrote the account. Who were they? No one knows. How could you prove the resurrection of Lazarus, or of the widow's son? How could you substantiate today the ascension of Jesus Christ? In what way could you prove that the river Jordan was divided upon being struck by the coat of the prophet? 
how is it possible now to establish the fact that the fires of a furnace refused to burn three men where are the witnesses who upon the whole earth has the slightest knowledge upon this subject he insisted that at the bottom of all good was the useful that human happiness was an end worth working and living for that origin and destiny were alike unknown that the best religion was to live temperately and to deal justly with our fellow-men that the dogma of inspiration was absurd and that an honest man had nothing to fear of course the kirk hated him he laughed at the creed to the lot of him fell ease respect success and honour while many disciples of god were the sport and prey of misfortune he kept steadily advancing envious christians bided their time they waited as patiently as possible for the horrors of death to fall upon the heart and brain of david hume they knew that all the furies would be there and that god would get his revenge adam smith author of the wealth of nations speaking of hume in his last sickness says that in the presence of death quote, his cheerfulness was so great and his conversation and amusements ran so much in the usual strain that notwithstanding all his bad symptoms many people could not believe he was dying a few days before his death hume said i am dying as fast as my enemies if i have any could wish and as easily and tranquilly as my best friends could desire colonel edmonston shortly afterward wrote him a letter of which the following is an extract quote, my heart is full i could not see you this morning i thought it was better for us both you cannot die you must live in the memory of your friends and acquaintances and your works will render you immortal i cannot conceive that it was possible for any one to dislike you or hate you he must be more than savage who could be an enemy to a man with the best head and heart and the most amiable manners adam smith happened to go into his room while he was reading the above letter which he immediately showed him smith said to hume that he was sensible of how much he was weakening and that appearances were in many respects bad yet that his cheerfulness was so great and the spirit of life still seemed to be so strong in him that he could not keep from entertaining some hopes hume answered quote, when i lie down in the evening i feel myself weaker than when i arose in the morning and when i rise in the morning weaker than when i lay down in the evening i am sensible besides that some of my vital parts are affected so that i must soon die well said mr smith if it must be so you have at least the satisfaction of leaving all your friends and the members of your brother's family in particular in great prosperity he replied that he was so sensible of his situation that when he was reading lucian's dialogues of the dead among all the excuses which were alleged to charon for not entering readily into his boat he could not find one that fitted him he had no house to finish he had no daughter to provide for he had no enemies upon whom he wished to revenge himself and i could not well he said imagine 
what excuse I can make to Sharon in order to obtain a little delay. I have done everything of consequence which I ever meant to do, and I could at no time expect to leave my relations and friends in a better situation than that in which I am now likely to leave them. I have, therefore, every reason to die contented. Close quote. Upon further consideration, said he, I thought I might say to him, Good Sharon, I have been correcting my works for a new edition. Allow me a little time that I may see how the public receives the alterations. But, Sharon would answer, when you have seen the effect of this, you will be for making other alterations. There will be no end to such excuses. So, my honest friend, please step into the boat. But, I might still argue, have a little patience, good Sharon. I have been endeavoring to open the eyes of the public. If I live a few years longer, I may have the satisfaction of seeing the downfall of some of the prevailing systems of superstition. And Sharon would then lose all temper and decency, and would cry out, You loitering rogue, that will not happen these many hundred years. Do you fancy I will grant you a lease for so long a time? Get into the boat this instant. To the Comtesse de Bouffiers, the dying man, with the perfect sincerity that springs from an honest and loving life, writes, I see death approach gradually without any anxiety or regret. I salute you with great affection and regard for the last time. On the 25th of August, 1776, the philosopher, the historian, the infidel, the honest man, and a benefactor of his race, in the composure born of a noble life, passed quietly and painlessly away. Dr. Black wrote the following account of his death. Quote, Monday, 26, August, 1776. Dear Sir, Yesterday, about four o'clock in the afternoon, Mr. Hume expired. The near approach of his death became evident on the evening between Thursday and Friday, when his disease became exhaustive, and soon weakened him so much that he could no longer rise from his bed. He continued to the last perfectly sensible, and free from much pain or feeling of distress. He never dropped the smallest expression of impatience, but when he had occasion to speak to the people about him, always did it with affection and tenderness. When he became very weak, it cost him an effort to speak, and he died in such happy composure of mind that nothing could exceed it. Close quote. Dr. Cullen writes Dr. Hunter on the 17th of September, 1776, from which the following extracts are made. Quote, you desire an account of Mr. Hume's last days, and I give it to you with great pleasure. It was truly an example of des grands hommes qui sont morts en plaisant, and to me, who have been so often shocked with the horrors of superstition, the reflection on such a death is truly agreeable. For many weeks before his death he was very sensible of his gradual decay, and his answer to inquiries after his health was, several times, that he was going as fast as his enemies could wish, and as easily as his friends could desire. He passed most of the time in his drawing-room, 
admitting the visits of his friends, and with his usual spirit conversed with them upon literature and politics and whatever else was started. In conversation he seemed to be perfectly at ease, and to the last abounded with that pleasantry and those curious and entertaining anecdotes which ever distinguished him. His senses and judgment did not fail him to the last hour of his life. He constantly discovered a strong sensibility of the attention and care of his friends, and midst great uneasiness and languor never betrayed any peevishness or impatience. Here follows the conversation with Charon. Quote, These are a few particulars which may perhaps appear trivial, but to me no particulars seem trivial which relate to so great a man. It is perhaps from trifles that we can best distinguish the tranquilness and cheerfulness of the philosopher at a time when the most part of mankind are under disquiet and sometimes even horror. I consider the sacrifice of the cock as a more certain evidence of the tranquillity of Socrates than his discourse on immortality. The Christians took it for granted that this serene and placid man died filled with remorse for having given his real opinions, and proceeded to describe, with every incident and detail of horror, the terrors of his last moments. Brainless clergymen, incapable of understanding what Hume had written, knowing only in a general way that he had held their creeds in contempt, answered his arguments by maligning his character. Christians took it for granted that he died in horror and recounted the terrible scenes. When the facts of his death became generally known to intelligent men, the ministers redoubled their efforts to maintain the old calumnies, and most of them are in his employment even unto this day. Finding it impossible to tell enough falsehoods to hide the truth, a few of the more intelligent among the priests admitted that Hume not only died without showing any particular fear, but was guilty of unbecoming levity. The first charge was that he died like a coward, the next that he did not care enough, and went through the shadowy doors of the dread unknown with a smile upon his lips. The dying smile of David Hume scandalized the believers in a god of love. They felt shocked to see a man dying without fear, who denied the miracles of the Bible, who had spent a life investigating the opinions of men, in endeavoring to prove to the world that the right way is the best way, that happiness is a real and substantial good, and that virtue is not a termagant with sunken cheeks and hollow eyes. Christians hated to admit that a philosopher had died serenely without the aid of superstition, one who had taught that man could not make God happy by making himself miserable, and that a useful life, after all, was the best possible religion. They imagined that death would fill such a man with remorse and terror. He had never persecuted his fellow men for the honor of God, and must needs die in despair. They were mistaken. He died as he had lived, like a peaceful river, with green and shaded banks, he passed without a murmur into that waveless sea where life at last is rest. End of section 12. David Hume.